Give it up to a saxophone, come on. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> and the rest of the band aren't bad either. So. Uh, is Debbie in the house? Is Debbie here? Sign and Debbie, Debbie, married to Sign, is she here? Yeah, come up and join me, because you're going to do the reading for us, aren't you, Debbie? Great. Uh, while Debbie's getting her thoughts together, staring out at you lot, uh, I've got something in my pocket that um, I've been wanting to do this for a week or two. Two strange bits of paper. And in view of the beautiful worship that we have just gone through, um, I've been wanting to do this because I'm a bit fed up with the way I give. And I'm just thinking about, you know, when Don brings this story about Dagon, the the God that man has made falls down and his head falls off. And, and I think, what can, what can I do? How can I respond to you, God? And I do it through uh, my giving. And my giving, I never want this church ever to be short of money. God forbid that we ever are short because this church does so many beautiful things. And my giving is electronic. And sometimes I wish... I could be a bit more demonstrative about my giving. I've got this strange piece of paper here. Does anyone recognise it? It's called a cheque. Does anyone recognise this strange piece of paper? Anyway, and, oh look, this, I would call that paper, but I think it's polymer. Okay, this is another strange thing called cash. And um, I don't kind of use these things anymore, so no, you can't have it. And it's blank, as Sally said, oh, that's a blank cheque, Clive. You know, I could use that. <laughs> Just joking apart. Basically... What we want to do is just to be more demonstrative sometimes when we give. And so what we thought we'd do is put um, giving stations uh, just at the front of the, of the building here, the auditorium. So there's a bucket and there's a QR code next to the bucket. So you can use your phone and you go with your QR code straight to the giving. But there are many times during worship I've said, Lord, what can I bring? And I, I can bring out of my out of my, uh, my earnings, I can bring out of who I am and what I've got. But Lord, I, you know, I owe you everything. I, I, I own nothing. I steward everything. And I just want to have moments really when I give. So we thought maybe some of you might feel like that as well in your giving. So every now and again, maybe, you know, I don't know if you can electronically mess with your giving. You probably can't. But every now and again, I'm going to try and do that and just put some... Put some money into the bucket and say, Lord, this, you've got the lot. I'm free. I'm not worried about the future. I'm, I'm going to trust you for my finances. And so I want to be more deliberate in my giving. Am I the only one who feels like that? I just feel sometimes I want to do that. So if that's you, if you're like me, those buckets will be there from now on in a more demonstrative way. Okay, so we, hiya Debbie. This is Debbie. Let's give her a little round of applause. Woo! <laughs> Debbie, you are never going to reach that. Oh, you've got the mic there. That's great. So what we're doing today is we're carrying on in the series in Romans. And it was really only four or five Sundays where we're going to look at the book of Romans. Uh, we would be here till 2047 in the book of Romans if we went through every beautiful verse in this stunning letter that Paul has written. And it's in the series, Who is Jesus? Who am I? Up on the screens behind you. And both Martin and Jürgen have taken us through the power of what the gospel has done to make you and me right with God. And we come now to the high Himalayas. We come now to the mountaintops. We come to Romans chapter 8. And Romans 8 is just, I mean, man, Romans 8 is like dancing on, dancing on the top of Mount Everest in all that Christ has done for us. So I've asked Debbie if she will read from verses 18 onwards to the end. 
And I've got the beautiful responsibility of saying something to you out of the book of, out of Romans chapter 8. Which verse am I going to choose? Well, you're going to find out fairly soon. Okay, but it is a beautiful verse. It's what some would describe as the doctrine that beats all other doctrines because it summarises everything that Romans 8 is all about. But before we do that, let's pray and then I'll ask Debbie to read. Okay, Lord... Thank you for the glory of worship. Thank you for refreshing us this morning and reminding us that we do not live by our own strength, but we live by everything that you speak to us in whispers and sometimes with a megaphone. But Lord, you talk to us. You're the communicating God with his children. So Father, come amongst us. Speak to us, Father. It's your kids here. And we are eager just to be with our dad, with Abba, Papa. We're eager to be with you and to hear what you've got to say to us this morning. So help us now through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's go for it then, Debbie. Okay, let's, let's read Romans 8 onwards. 18. Romans 8, I'll read from 18 downwards. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn amongst many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God 
and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. Oh man, shall I just go and sit down now, if that's all right with you? It's Corinth, it's AD 57, and there's a man who's deep in thought. And he's got a friend called Tertius, who's got better handwriting than him. And the guy deep in thought has a name, and his name is a derivative of Paulus, which means small or humble. And what this man is about to dictate to Tertius, you've just read, and it's anything but small. This man is Paul and he's going to write perhaps the most significant letter on the Christian faith ever written. It's the book or the letter of Romans. And Romans is incredibly important. I remember when I first came to this church uh, in 2002 and Don was preaching, he loved Romans. And I was with Don in Hastings back in 1983-84 and all I seemed to get was the book of Romans drummed into my head Chapters 5 to 8. If you know chapters 5 to 8, you've got an absolutely solid foundation in the Christian faith. Romans 5, 6, 7 and 8 sums it all up. It's basically what Luther said. Martin Luther gets hold of what Romans is saying here. He's saying this, quote Luther, back in the 16th century. Here I must take the counsel of the gospel I must hearken, that's a lovely old-fashioned word, I must listen to the gospel. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this well. Teach it unto others and beat it into their heads continually. So <laughs> there's a lovely Keller um, uh, image of when you're standing in front of a Coke machine, right? Coca-Cola machine it is, okay? And, um, or it's like one of these um, vending machines with chocolate, right? And you put in a pound coin and it doesn't quite drop into the machine. Oh, no. And you know what you do next, don't you? You start doing this, uh, kicking it and bashing it. And then you hear the penny drop. Well, wish it were a penny when you, you feel the pound coin drop. And that's what's happening here. How many times have you pounded the side of the vending machine for it to settle the coins and then a can of Coca-Cola falls? Well, we're going to bash the side of the machine again this morning so that the pound coin drops again for you. What Romans 5 to 8 is saying is utterly precious. Let's put Romans into context. Why is this such a beautiful passage? Well, the one line, or even the one word I want to talk to you about today, is the word assurance. So if you want a title for today, it's the word assurance. You've got the assurance here, and you're going to need reassurance for the rest of your life. Because we're frail human beings. We're made of flesh. We're going to need assurance that we're, our standing in Christ is true, but you're going to need reassurance right through to that day when on your last breaths 
He pulls you into eternity. And so the reason that this letter is so powerful because it's in context in uh, the first century and Rome is a city of about a million inhabitants and about 40% of that is slaves. And it's a very tough place to live because there are huge contrasts between rich and poor, free men and women and slaves. And by about AD 64, just a few years after Paul has written Romans, there's Emperor Nero going crazier and crazier, just turning to madness effectively. And he becomes despotic and cruel. And those first century Christians are in serious need of assurance. You've ever been to the Colosseum? You'll know that the, here's a bit of Latin for you, the word sand in Latin is arena. And there was a need for fresh sand all the time on the floor of the Colosseum because of the blood that was being spilt week after week for the games to titillate the Roman citizens as the Christians were either being crucified or impaled and then tarred and set alight for the Roman citizens to walk by night to torches in to see the games. And these believers in Roman times in that first century desperately needed encouragement and reassurance. And that's the context in which Debbie has just read that beautiful, beautiful set of verses. Now let me just try and condense a little bit of Romans 8 because I'm going to pick out one verse today which I think resonates with every single one of us this morning. God wants to be very close to you this morning and reassure you of your walk in him and your destiny. But let me just quickly summarise. Jürgen and Martin did it brilliantly, but let me remind you if you weren't around then, and welcome, by the way, to live stream. It's great to have you with us again this week. Let's just say this. You are eternally secure now, as well as when you face judgment. God has declared you to be in right standing with the holy God. I could stop there. The second thing that Romans 1 to seven tells us is we are no longer under the control of sinful desires. A lot of people sound quite pious when they say, oh, I'm just a sinner. Oh, I know that I will sin every day. Well, actually, I've got some news to you. That's not the Christian gospel because sin's power has been broken by what Jesus did at the cross. So therefore, I do not need to say I will sin every day. That's just simply not the gospel. You are positionally perfect in God's sight and the power of sin has been broken. There is a choice now before us to live by the power of the Holy Spirit within us or to go on feeding the old dog. No, we feed the new dog now. The old dog's dead. That old flesh that you live with has no longer got inevitable power over you. And so wonder of wonders... God puts me in the place of approval and himself in the place of condemnation. And wonder of wonders, God accepts that exchange. Isn't that amazing? I am pre-approved tomorrow. God is not the dreaded slave driver that I used to think he was. He is so much kinder. I can call him Abba, Papa. And that's what Romans 8 is all about. Let me come now to the verse that I really want to uh, bash the vending machine on. It's Romans 8, 28. So Richard, could we just have that look? Look at this verse. Look at it. 
Look at it, worthy of all our consideration for the next few minutes. This is one of the most remarkable statements that Paul has ever made. It is one of the most comforting statements in the whole of Scripture. In terms of doctrine, there is nothing really higher than this. This is ultimate doctrine. <laughs> this is ultimate doctrine. This, this is God overruling all things in such a manner that they turn out for the good and the benefit of his people. This means that you can't know this and be downcast at the same time. I'm now going to take my glasses and perch them on the end of my nose and ask, <laughs> can you? Can you be downcast? If this is true, can you know this and be downcast at the same time? Even those things that seem to be against you, discouraging, deeply disheartening, those things, as well as the things, Paul, you're talking about all things, even failure, serious illness, perplexing accidents, even my sin. God, are you going to use my sin to show me my weakness and my frailty so that my self-confidence is shaken, so that I come to the end of myself and so therefore you take hold of even my defeats and my sins and you use them to bring me nearer to you? Yes, says God, you're getting there. You're beginning to understand. Even your sins will work together for good. That is astonishing. Is he allowed to say that? They're looking it up right now. All things. And it's mysterious, but somehow God permits, I choose that word very carefully, God permits things to happen to us for our good. And God has not done bad things to us in a deliberate sense, but he has permitted sometimes some things to happen to us. It's mysterious. And we need this verse to help interpret what God's doing in our lives. He even sometimes not only permits things to happen to us, sometimes he sends things to us for our good that we may not necessarily understand as good at the time. I wonder if you're thinking something through right now with me. I have plenty of examples in my own life. And so that causes some people to stumble. Let's be real. The thing that perhaps has come into your life has caused you to stumble. And you think to yourself, hang on a minute, if God's my father, aren't you meant to give me only good things? What's going on, God? What's happening? So many things are happening at deep levels in your life. And so we say to ourselves, this is what I say to myself sometimes when I'm in perplexity and mysterious suffering or complication. I say this, I don't understand fully what's happening to me, but if it's part of the way God's treating me and dealing with me tenderly as my father, I am content. I am ready to persevere. I'm ready to go on trusting, even in the dark, in this way, as long as I know that it is God who is dealing with me for my good. Can you say that this morning? This verse is to warm you, to draw you back into place of faith and trust. If you believe in fate, you've no reason for taking the initiative. 
Kesarasara, whatever will be, will be. Have you noticed that there's a lot of talk about, if you've noticed what Emma Watson has been saying recently, she said on one of her, um, is it Instagram, Emma Watson, the, the Harry Potter actress, she said, Saturn has returned. And I, th- I wish I knew what that meant, but it's something to do with planets aligning and she thinks that she's going to have favour and I'm thinking, gosh, you know, I'm not going to trust in Saturn's return. I'm trusting in Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28 that you're looking at right now teaches you that there is another way of looking at your life. Forget the horoscopes. Forget the zodiac signs. Forget the reading the tea leaves in the bottom of your cup. This is working for your good whether you see it or not at this point in time, because the hand of God is at the helm of your life. Once you've given your heart to Jesus, he is going to steer you through all the storms. He's going to bring you safely home. This is the promise. This is why this is such high ultimate doctrine, because he's going to take care to order all the events of your life, all the events of your life right now, to help you on your way to heaven, into his presence. And this is what theologians call, and this is the most beautiful word, it's called providence. That is a beautiful word. Here's a definition of providence. God's overruling hand at work everywhere in your life and in this difficult world that we live in. Providence, God's overruling hand. And you you don't need me to tell you about all those biblical heroes who understood providence as their lives went through the decades. Joseph chucked into a well and then ends up as Pharaoh's right-hand man and then eventually is reconciled with his brothers. Providence follows him all the way through, but he can't see it all the way through. Think of Moses put in a basket in the reeds and yet look what he ends up leading his people and then standing on Mount Nebo and seeing the promised land. He's from baby in the bulrushes to standing on Nebo. Providence has taken him all the way through. It is behind everything that's taught in scripture and it's behind your life. So biblical confidence in the providence of God is a faith that does something to you. It actually makes you bold. So, so strong is this doctrine that I'm going to squeeze you now, okay, that you cannot believe it halfway. You cannot hedge your bets with this truth. (laughs) Sorry, some of you are already doing it. Yeah, but God, what about, what about, what about? No, I'm not going to allow you that today. Either everything, all things work together for our good or nothing makes sense. You're either going to be transformed by this truth or you're going to become a bitterly sceptical person. Which one are you? Romans 8.28, you can't just sort of believe it. There is no middle ground. Do I hear a... Somebody said amen. Can I have a loud Loud amen for as many who are prepared to say it? (laughs) Yeah, come on. Once this is grasped, What would my life look like if I feared nothing but God's outworking in my life? What difference would it make if we no longer feared the cost of discipleship? 
What difference would it make if we didn't fear change or the future with all its uncertainty, all the things you're worried about right now as you came in through those swing doors? What do fearless people look like? They stand out. You remember them. And deep down, don't you want to live more boldly for God? Theatrical pause. Wouldn't you love to be intimidated no longer? What would that do to you? I've got some wonderful conclusions from the All Hands on Deck conference, which we, Silver Surfers, had a few weeks back. We had that one-day conference with nearly 200 people in this room. Gough Hope came down from Norwich. We had a blast. And a few of the phrases that I picked up from that day when us oldies were thinking about the future to infinity and beyond. Buzz Lightyear's got nothing on us. Okay, I'm bigging myself up here now, so we'll stop right there. But some of the phrases are like this. Jump first, fear later. Okay, my grandson Cameron, who lives out in Dubai, Julie and I went out to visit the droids, the little ones, the small grandchildren, my daughter who followed us out to Dubai. And my little grandson Cameron is four years old and he has no fear. So here am I in the swimming pool. Oh, it was warm there. Do you remember a thing called warmth? Okay, and I'm in the swimming pool and Cameron is four years old and he says, Pops, Pops, I'm going to jump. Are you ready? I say, ready as I'll ever be. So I'm standing about mm, two metres into the pool from the poolside. And he comes and runs and jumps. And he crashes into the pool. I hold him. He says, pops, pops, I want to do a star sign. You know, star sign in the swimming pool. So I've got my hand under his back and the pool water splashing over his face. And he's like that and he's having a ball. He's having a whale of a time. Um, I didn't mix my metaphors there, did I? Whale of a time, do you get that? Water. Okay, forget it. Okay, so in other words, basically that little kid is saying this, tameness is not an option in my little four-year-old life. Let's not become tame. Not when this is in front of us. Richard, keep that up, okay? Keep that, I want this text here all the way through my sermon. All right? Okay. Risk passionately. These were phrases that came out of all hands on deck. Jesus's teaching, we realised, was subversive. Now, what does subversive mean? It means it undermines your fixed ideas. Jesus is, is thrillingly subversive. He's a bit of a rebel. He tells stories which are a bit, ooh, are you allowed to say things like that? So he tells a story about prayer. He says this, there was a judge who cared neither for God nor for what people thought. And you think, man, you know, you can't sell, tell stories like that. It's so dangerous. Aren't they electric? That first line of that, par- that parable. There's this guy who doesn't care about God and he doesn't care about people. Whoa, how's Jesus going to bring something spiritual out of that? But he does. And really all the things that we learned on that conference were this, that risk is indispensable to the Christian life. Sorry, but you're going to have to keep on risking. And the reason why you can do that is because of this. The assurance comes as you keep risking, as you keep stepping out in faith, as you keep taking God at his word, as you keep opening your mouth and speaking, as you live boldly for him. And remember that the context of Romans 8 is for terrible persecution. And that's part of our problem 
is that we can be lulled into this false sense of security. But the war is raging outside. It is raging. Let me put a, let me temper this a little bit now and say this. Sometimes God waits. He seems to hide himself. And while you're clinging to that verse, you're thinking, God, I think you're hiding from me. You seem very complicated to me at the moment. I'm trying to get hold of what Clive's talking about here, but somehow you seem to be hiding in my suffering. You seem to be hiding in my failure. So I have to work out what I did wrong. Sometimes you're hiding in the complicated story of my life. But I tell you the truth this morning, that whatever your circumstances today, God is powerfully present, maybe hiding, but waiting for us to discover him afresh. Waiting for us, maybe in the shadows, as well as in the light. And so if you look at, if you look in your Bibles, that you haven't got this on screen now, but Romans 8.26 says this. You don't need to look it up. It says, we do not know what we should pray for. And then only two verses later, Romans 8.28 says this, and we know. Hang on a minute, Paul. You just said two verses earlier, we don't know what, we do not know what to pray for. And then you go on and say, and we know that God works. That's a summary of authentic Christianity. There are some things that you don't know and there are some things that you do know. And you've got to work, work in tension with a God who works with the Hebrew mindset where he says, you're going to keep two things in tension together. And the truth is right between those two. So in other words, don't try to pretend that you know what you don't really know. You're still with me? Sometimes you won't know what to say or pray. And you're looking at that verse, you're saying, Lord, how are you working things together for good? I don't see it at the moment. And then at other times you think, actually, I don't know what's going on, but I'm not going to hold back in timidity. And, I'm, and I'm, I refuse not to affirm what I do know. You with me? So I am going to say what I do know. And I do know that God has been faithful to me at those dramatic times in my past where I really needed his help. And so therefore God is really at work despite anyone being in the land of confusion here this morning. It's still true. He will come through. He will Come out of the shadows and you will find that as you clung to him in faith, he will work all things for good. So in amongst those perplexities of life, what do we do? Let's, let's now begin to end now in the last five minutes. We're going to break bread in a moment. Okay, let's say four things quite quickly. Let's break that verse down again. Firstly, we know that all things work together for our good. So to summarise, not some things, not the nice things, but all things, even our sins fall within the scope of all things. You cannot sin your way out of God's purpose for your life because your sin is the very thing that his saving purposes came to redeem. So how can you? That's who he came for, people who've messed up. So if there's if there is even one single experience of life that falls out of the range of all things, then this verse doesn't hold up as trustworthy. Isn't that exciting? God's gone out on a limb for you. He's gone out, he's gone out on the edge. He's put his money where his mouth is. Am I allowed to say that? I've just said it. This is amazing. 
Look at the, look at the audacity of this promise. So you never need to say, <laughs> if you think you've messed up, or if you think life's not going the way it should be going, you can say this, you usually say this, okay, is this the moment when God seems to be abandoning me? How many of you have prayed that prayer? Okay, this is the moment. I think, God, you've finally left town. Am I now outside your love and your power to reach me? Am I now outside your resources and your care? You're not allowed to say that because of this verse. But let me just say something that bites a little. The boldness of Romans 8.28 does not turn a blind eye to our sin. It doesn't soften the tough consequences of sin. But what God does is he uses our sins to sting us to repentance. Because you can't outmaneuver the mercy of God. So even your sin, when you're feeling weighed down by it, a bit like David was when he was a a, a naughty boy with Bathsheba he's, he he's heavy he's feeling guilty and it draws him back to God eventually and therefore God uses uh, the things we've done wrong to intend mercy for us you can't outmaneuver him so that's the first thing the second thing is this that we know that all things work together let's just look at that word together so on this, on this very day he is moving his loving purposes forward in all sorts of ways, in ways you don't know. And even if there are other things that are working against you, somehow the bad things and the good things somehow seem to be working together. I don't really understand this, but it's true. You think about Joseph, who I mentioned earlier. God's purposes overruled Joseph's brothers when they chucked Joseph into the pit. So Joseph is then able to say, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So there's some stuff here that's happening to you that seems like evil, but God will use that to make it for good. You can't outsmart this verse. God works this way in all things, even when evil is involved. I want, you to, I want a book plug now. Uh, I forgot to mention to you, Monica, if, Monica, if you're around. I'd love us to get a few copies of this book. This is by Jerry Sitzer, who's a theologian at Wheaton College in the States. The book is called A Grace Disguised. And then there's a heron here standing by a lakeside on its own. This is an astonishing book. A Grace Disguised. He is driving back in their camper van. He, his wife, his mother-in-law and their four children... They've been to an Indian reservation in Idaho. It's dark now, and he's driving home, full family in his, in his camper van. And suddenly he sees some bright lights of head, headlamps coming towards him. And there's a car driving really, really fast at 85 miles an hour. And it's a drunk driver. And it smashes into the camper van. And his wife dies, his mother-in-law dies, and his little daughter dies in the crash and is left with his three other children and it is horrendous what happens to him and three years later he starts to make sense of what happened and you might think he'll never come back from that to believe in the goodness of God he'll never come back to that verse and say surely God I want you to read this book if you're struggling with the vicissitudes of life you know the ups and downs of life and you may have had something that hurt you in a way that 
was as grievous to Jerry Sitzer, who lost members of his family. Let me read to you. He starts to, this is towards the end of the book. Three years later, he's beginning to make sense that God is still with him and he will see his family again. They were believers. And again, that's the bite of you must give your life to Christ if you haven't already given it to him because there is an eternal, eternal weight of glory and hope for those who have given their life to Jesus. This is, this is strong meat this morning. He writes this, somewhere along the line I realised that I would have to change my idea of what the good life meant and promised. The old definition died on a lonely highway in rural Idaho back in 1991. The world seemed a bleak place to me, my future as dim as dusk on a grey winter's day. Somehow I had to believe that life would be good again when I had so little reason or evidence at my disposal. But there is abundant evidence now. This is incredible. This is page 204 as he's been working through the loss of his loved ones. He says this, my life, I can hardly begin to read this to you, but I'm going to read it. You must read this for yourselves. My life is as rich as any person I know, though it took a long time to get where I am. My whole world has been transformed. It is very good, just good in a different way from what I had expected and wanted. And he goes on to mention three things that happened to him. One is that he realises that he's been living a shallow life before God. He's understood his own selfishness, his own ambition, his own impatience. God worked at a very deep level in his life. And a second thing that he experiences change in is becoming a, being a father. So he's now a father to three surviving children. And he says, I performed as a father then. I am a father now, deep inside. In the months following the accident, I assumed that life would return quickly to normal. But I found tremendous joy in learning to function as a single father. So his depth of fathering grows amazingly. And the last thing he says is this. He says, the third change has been the discovery that our lives are part of a greater story. What once seemed chaotic and random, like a deck of cards thrown into the air, has started to look like the plot of a wonderful story. It is not entirely clear yet how things will turn out. But I have lived this story long enough now to know that something extraordinary is unfolding, as if it were an epic that would give Homer's Odyssey a run for his money. And that's your life. It's an epic and it's unfolding. And the things that you think are simple and trivial or the things that you think are going to damage you forever are being woven together into something so precious. They are working together for your good. And your good is not to make you richer and more popular and more healthy and more successful. They are to conform you to the image of his son, Jesus. That's what this is all about. As you trust that verse, you are changing and becoming more like Christ and so attractive to a thirsty and broken world. And my last point is this, that all things work together for good. For whom? For those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Those people who get hold of that verse don't just believe the Bible. They don't just go to church. 
They embrace all his purpose for their lives and they risk in faith adventures. And guess what? The assurance comes as you step out. There's no, my grandmother used to, it was very funny, we used to laugh as kids. My, my grandmother from Islington would, would come and visit us as family. And when she'd had enough of us, because we were noisy kids, she would sit in the hall and she put her hat and coat on. And she had one of those kind of furry muff things that you know, you know that you put your two hands in little, that thing. And, you, and she sat there and she said to my grandfather, Tom, her name was Lil. And Lil said to Tom, we're going now. And she would sit in the hall waiting <laughs> for us to say, well, goodbye, Gran. It was nice to have you around with us. Don't sit in the hall with your hat and coat on waiting for heaven. <laughs> it's time to step out again. You want assurance? You've got to be on the move. God gives you assurance when you're risking. This is dynamic and exciting. And I'm now going to break bread. Amen. Come on, let's just pray. Let's pray. Lord, we're about to break bread. Oh, man. All things work together in your life, Lord Jesus, for our ultimate good. Everything you did. Lord, as we come back to worship and the breaking of bread, I, I hold up this bread. If you're not a believer, we very carefully and respectfully ask you not to take bread and wine. It's too special. Because this is about a, a man who was God who sacrificed his life in the most appalling Roman death you could imagine. And he became our substitute. He exchanged his perfect life for my imperfect life. And God accepted that exchange, as I said earlier. And so this is so special. Don't, don't do this thing, what the Bible calls, unworthily. But if you're a believer and if you're from another church, join with us. And if you want more of Jesus in your life and you don't think whether you're sure you're a believer or not, join us. Eat in faith. And you're doing that honourably then. And you're not dishonouring the beautiful name of Jesus, our Saviour. So I'm going to break this bread. Let's look at it. Let's just look at and think about Jesus on the cross. We'll never get over it, Lord. We'll never get over it. What you did for us. I feel so unworthy, Lord, and yet you tell me that I'm worthy in your sight. I don't understand it, Lord. I don't get it. And yet it's true. I love you, Lord Jesus. My poor heart, I wish I loved you more. But you draw me again and again. And I thank you, Lord. I thank you, Lord. I thank you for your love that washes over me. Come, Holy Spirit. Come deeply into every heart in this room now. Father, Father, thank you.
for sending your most precious son that we might enjoy life with him and you forever in the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord.